0: So you must be familiar with a scene like this. The entire class is gathered on the ball field. There is a captain on this side and a captain on this side, and the selections begin. They're choosing up teams. And it goes rather quickly at the beginning. I get Bill. I get Ed. I get Andy. I get Chris. I get, hmm, hmm, who do I get now? All the guys are gone, we're just down to the girls. See? Mm, Okay, I take Mary, I take Alice, Uh, fine, I'll take Amy. Uh, Do I have to have? It eventually comes down to, and choosing up sides. This is a childhood ritual. For some of you, it's quite delightful because you were skilled, you were popular, you're The captain was your best friend. For some of us, less skilled, less popular, it is one of those rituals we run from. Very bad memories from choosing up sides. Norman Rockwell captures it in his sketch from 1951 that is familiar to a lot of you. What it feels like to get chosen, and maybe not. Now, certainly, if not on a ball field, somewhere else in your life and in your world, you know what it is to be picked on a team a, for a classroom project, for an assignment somewhere, to be selected or not. As I've told you before, someone very close to me tells the story of asking a girl to the banquet and academy, and the girl says, I'll get back to you at the end of the week if no one else asks me. <laughs> Going with you. To be chosen... Or not. Choosing upsides. Someone told me this morning after first service a little poem I've never been so embarrassed as in PE, the last one chosen is invariably me. Choosing upsides. If you open your Bible, it is richly apparent and it is undeniable. It is a theme that God chooses. From the very beginning in the book of Genesis, God goes about choosing, and it's part of what makes the Bible interesting. God chooses a garden, God chooses Adam and Eve, God chooses a plan, and sin invades. And it takes a few chapters before we see God chooses again. God chooses to redeem, and he chooses to do it through Abraham and Sarah. And when he chooses Abraham and Sarah, we could say that specifically no one else is chosen at that moment. God makes what appears to be an exclusive choice when he takes Abraham and Sarah, and he says he will make their household and their nation to rule above all others. They will have land and family and possessions, Israel. This idea of being chosen, Frank Spina calls this the capital S story of the Bible. Someone is chosen by God and it appears when one is chosen others are not election is accompanied by diselection we could say it that way as well and i invite you to think about this now for the month of july this will be our theme as we look in the bible at the chosen israelites and what it is to be elect what does it mean when god chooses abram sarah and then through noah shem i'm sorry noah shem Terah, Abram, Sarah, and eventually down through Jacob and his, all his descendants, finally, when we get to Jacob, the entire family will receive the blessing. What does it mean to be chosen like that? What are the implications as you move into the New Testament that Christ is then chosen, that the church is chosen and acts on behalf of this covenant, choosing up sides? It's the capital S story of the Bible, I'm told. So here's a question I have if that's the capital S story in the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, why are there so many insider or outsider stories scattered among the insider stories? Why are there so many stories, not just a few, but many, of those who fall outside the chosen nation, outside the covenant, the ones who didn't get selected? What are those stories there for? What good are outsiders? To insiders. Consider the case of Jacob and Esau this morning, will you? In, in Genesis chapter 25. Now, it's a 10 chapter long story, so you'll be grateful I've decided not to do all 10 chapters this morning. Would you read them this afternoon or sometime this week? In Genesis chapter 25, we meet Jacob and Esau when they're crammed inside this tiny compartment, the womb of their mother, and She's noticed, Rebecca, that they're jostling around. The Bible says they're moving around. They're causing a lot of, of uh, trauma to her. So she goes to God and has a conversation. Genesis 25, verse 23. The Lord said to her, Rebecca, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, and Rebekah loved Jacob. It is a story rich with word plays, word associations, words that are closely spelled, and we miss all of that because we don't read Hebrew and we don't understand the poetry employed there, and it makes me sad every time I come to one of these stories that I don't know Hebrew better. It is enough, maybe, for us to get a little taste that these two little ones have been named Esau and Jacob, because now we really do have the characters that the story will take. Esau, the hairy one, the red one, also closely associated with the land he'll someday live on, Edom, the land he inherits. Esau, you know, the outdoorsman, the kind of the bulky guy. And then Jacob, the one who grasps after the heel the tent dweller, the one who stays home. He reads books. He talks to his mother. A little quieter. This is Jacob and Esau. The Bible says, if we were to fast forward a few years now, that there came a day when Esau and Jacob were together Esau had been out hunting he came in and was hungry you know the story well he's starving in fact he demands that Jacob who's been at home cooking that Jacob give him some of his soup I want some of what you're cooking Genesis chapter 25 verses 31 Jacob replied first sell me your birthright look at me Esau says I'm about to die what good is a birthright to me Jacob said, but swear to me first, because he knows what brothers are like. It's not enough to make a promise. Swear to me now that you're going to give me that birthright. So he swore an oath to sell it to him, the birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, and then he got up and left. The storyteller is careful to tell us, so Esau despised his birthright. Jacob is cooking up trouble. Esau is eating whatever's served. It is such a significant act that's just taken place. And it's strange to me that it's over so quickly. And the Bible moves on now to the next story. Rebecca and Isaac have to move because there's another famine in the land. So there's a fast forward there. But it comes back. The next scene, Isaac is getting old. He's getting so old that he believes it's time for him to give a, his deathbed blessing to his sons and to his oldest son in particular, which is a custom. And so he calls for Esau to come. He wants Esau to cook for him, to prepare him a meal, and come by his bed so he can bless him before he dies. So the Bible tells us that um, Jacob and, and his mother, Rebecca, got busy. This time Jacob didn't really have to do anything because he had his mother there to do it for him. She began to spin the tale and weave the story and pull all the details together. They got the food. She cooked the stew, the meat, uh, just like Isaac liked. And they, they took care of the details like Isaac's smell. They made sure he wore the clothes Esau wore in the field, the Jacob smell. Jacob put on his brother's clothes. And, and because his arms weren't hairy like his brother's, remember Esau's the hairy one, Mama gets some goat skin and ties it and somehow attaches it to his arms, which always puzzled me. If you've ever lived with a guy with hairy arms, my father has very hairy arms. It doesn't feel a thing like sheepskin. I guess it's the best they can do. She attaches this this animal skin to her son, and she tells him, you know, now you're going to go in and you're going to get that blessing that belonged to your brother. Chapter 25, verse 31. Chapter 27, I'm sorry. He went into his father. Chapter 27, verse 18. This is now Jacob, all dressed up, going into his father with food. My father, yes, my son, he answered, who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, How did you find food so quickly? The Lord your God gave me success. A quick little lie. He sticks in there. Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he blessed him. Are you really my son Esau, he asked. I am, he replies. So Isaac proceeds with a blessing. You find it in verse 28 there. May God give you a heaven's due of earth's riches. And an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. And at the end of this blessing, one son exits and another son enters. Here comes Esau and he has really caught the game and he's also cooked it up. And he now stands before his father. And Jacob answers him, who are you? You know, what are you doing here? Verse 34, when Esau heard his father's words, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, Esau comes into the room and his father says, who are you? And he says, I'm Esau. He says, you can't be. Esau was just here. I'm paraphrasing for you to get you out on time this morning. (laughs) You can't be Esau. Esau was just here. And I gave him my blessing. And the Bible says, I really blessed him, by the way. That means the blessing will stick. What I just did mattered. Now that incites a response in Esau, verse 34. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and a bitter cry, and he said to his father, bless me too, father. And again, it says it in a few verses, but don't you have a blessing for me? And you can hear the Childhood cry from the playground almost, can't you? Pick me, choose me, don't leave me here. Bless me too, Father. Intriguing why Isaac proceeds when he knows Jacob is supposed to be the stronger favored one. Isaac proceeds with the blessing in verse 39. Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of the heaven above. You will live by the sword, and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. The brothers now part ways. They only meet two more times in Scripture, one of those times I'll come back to. The second time is when they bury their father. They come together for a decent burial and part ways again. I just want to pause for a moment and take in the rich information, however, that we have. Because some of these stories in the Old Testament in particular... While some things are ambiguous, some things are clearly spelled out. The characters here, for example, the chosen covenant family. Check out this bunch. Isaac. What is he doing favoring from the beginning his son Esau? What is he doing stepping out and blessing a son who isn't apparently supposed to receive his father's blessing? Isaac. Isaac. He must have known. And was he really fooled by the touch of all of that hair? It's almost comical, some authors suggest. Really? Really? He goes on to live another 20 years. How sick was he? Did this fool him? For sure. Rebecca, well now here's a teacher of lessons in deception. A barren womb, a womb opened for this purpose. This is a mother who takes great care and detail at pulling off a scheme. She's the religious one, remember, the righteous one. This is going to be the outcome? Jacob, indeed the favored younger son, but an opportunist at that, at the expense of anyone around him taking for himself, just as his name says, grabbing after the heel of Esau, no matter what the consequences. He wants what he wants. It is suggested by some that actually Jacob is the one to be more afraid of than Esau in this story. Jacob, the grandson of Abraham who falls inside the blessing, Jacob, the insider, has pulled off something equal to an outsider. Then there's Esau who lives in this moment. He forgets his responsibilities and the ramifications for the future. He sells away the most important possession any firstborn male son can ever possess. He gets to inherit twice that of his brother. He gets to be the leader not only of his family. This promise, this covenant that went from Abraham down to Isaac would now would have gone to, to Esau. He would have been the ruler of his nation. He was standing in line for that and it's gone. The birthright is gone. And some people say, well, Esau, he deserves whatever is coming to him. Who would give that away? The narrator even makes the statement to us in the story, Esau despised his birthright. Do you get a sense that you're in on a family pathology that was never really meant to be read by us? Do you get the sense that you're in on like a scrapbook of a family album here? I noticed that the new Sabbath School quarterlies that have just come out are highlighting, profiling Old Old Testament marriages, and they've given it the name for better or for worse. Am I right? Last week I told someone these are Old Testament marriages. We should probably call it for worse or for worse. Do you get the sense of the family pathology here? This is the chosen family, by the way, the covenant family. Here's, however, what really intrigues me about the story, because you have one brother destined to rule over the other brother, supposedly. Supposedly, there will now be a rivalry and a hate among them, but while these two men are living, they live rather peaceably together. Through their adult life, While they separate, there's really not that much of a problem. it's interesting. Jacob is afraid because Esau says, I'm going to get back at him. I'll kill him one day. So yes, Jacob moves east, and he goes kind of far away. And he makes a family and gathers his possession, and he becomes wealthy. And Esau goes the other direction, and he also makes a family, and he gathers possessions. But there really isn't a rivalry that you can trace in the Bible during this time between, between these two grown men. You have to wait another generation or two before we begin begin hearing about Esau's descendants, the Edomites. The Edomites who follow after Esau, and we hear about them one instance after the other, and like a song that will not end, won't go away once it begins. The Edomites, that's the first really warriors that the Israelites come up against for a battle with Amalek. It's the first land that they need to cross. When they're coming out of Egypt, they need to scoot across a piece of land that belongs to none other than Esau and his descendants. And so here's Jacob and his descendants asking permission. Can we just scoot across your land? We promise we won't eat your grapes. We won't drink your water. The word comes back. No, you can't be on our land. In fact, they come out in force to defend their land with their swords. They won't let the descendants of Jacob on the property. Read a little further the book of Esther, the, the bad guy, Haman. Guess who he's a descendant of? Esau. Keep going through Psalms, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the entire book of Obadiah, all 21 verses. Read Micah, and over and over again we read about judgment and the wasteland that is Edom. Don't forget what Edom has done to Israel. In fact, so much more we eventually read, out of the mouth of God himself, I've loved Jacob, I have hated Esau. It doesn't even end there because if you move into the New Testament, when Jesus is questioned by Pilate, before that's all over, he sits with one more person, Herod, Herod Antipas. Where does he come from? Esau, descendant of the same land. And on into Romans chapter nine, Paul picks up the same story. My question is really, where did all this hatred come from? Because while the two brothers were alive, it was they were fairly decent to one another. Where did this legacy of hatred come from for Edom and the Edomites and and all the deeds and the bloodshed that come centuries following these two men and And when I read the biblical account all the way through, I find myself actually mustering a little sympathy for Esau. Now, I don't know if it's just I'm an underdog person. Some of you are like that. I root for a franchise that hasn't won a title in 30 years, but I keep cheering for my same underdog team. Some of us, is it because it's just, I like the underdog, I know God's for the underdog? I, I don't think so. When I watch the account of Esau in this story, I have to ask, What happened to him? He was an insider who becomes an outsider. He had the best paperwork of anybody. He's the grandson of Abraham. And he becomes the outsider. He becomes really a father of a whole nation of hatred. How did that happen? When I read the account of Jacob and Esau, studied it this week, I couldn't help but thinking of uh, Adrian and Maggie Cotton, pregnant. Maggie's pregnant with twins some of you know. Twin boys. Here's a picture of the cotton twins. Two heads together. Uh, these babies are supposed to come out in first part of August, first, second week in August. I asked uh, Adrian, does Maggie, do you sense that Maggie knows she's got two nations wrestling against one another in there? He said, um, she just knows it's crowded. She just knows one feels a little bigger than the other, and and uh, we hope they're well they have a good disposition, like Maggie he said, <laughs> do you sense you 've got one nation wrestling with the other it's interesting language the Hebrew poet uses for Rebecca 's pregnancy. Maybe it is in fact another way of describing what humans do to other humans, yeah, humans all born of the same family, humans struggle humans who expend their, lifetimes, their lifetime wrestling with one another. Humans who've been given this undeserved, unexplained gift we call life. And we will waste it tearing down other humans, even our own family members, those who've chose different paths, those who profess different beliefs. Humans hate other humans. That's what's really happening in the Jacob and Esau story. And it is Notable all around the globe today and perhaps traced back to stories like this from our Bible. People hate people. However, in the middle of that long biblical story, would you just come back with me because there's a very surprising scene that takes place. Jacob and Esau have lived apart for a while with their families. Their families have grown large, and for some reason, Jacob has decided, we should get back together again. I should go and find my brother Esau. I know I was in trouble. Let's just go and get this over with. Jacob takes his whole household, which is large by now, several wives, many children, and he decides as he gets close to Esau's land, you know, he really does hate me. He really probably will kill me. So therefore, he prays to God, and he devises a plan. I'll, I'll split my family in half. I'll put half my my women and children it sounds terrible doesn't it but that's the way it went then I'll put half my women and children here I'll put the other half over here I'll divide my possessions that way when we sneak up to my brother's land when he sees us he'll only see half of us he'll only kill half of us then at least half of us will live Jacob goes through all this trouble on the outskirts because he sent a spy and he sees his brother has 400 men scattered all along the hills with their swords. They're ready to go to battle. So Jacob prays and he makes this plan and it is really true. What he deserves is whatever Esau can unleash on him because he stole what was not his. What Esau could do is unleash on him that entire mantra of, it's not fair, it's not right, I was cheated, I didn't deserve this. And it could go on and on in Esau's eyes. He could rebel with everything he has. He could ignite and he could destroy, as happens today among families and generations. Esau could have. Genesis chapter 33, verse 4, however, tells us, When the two saw each other, Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around the neck and he kissed him and they wept. Man to man they wept standing on the grass. Esau looked up and he saw the women and the children and he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob answered, They're my children. God has graciously given your servant. And Jacob tries to give Esau some of his belongings. Now, if you'll move down to verse 10b, Jacob, Jacob tries to give the belongings. Esau says, no, 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 no. I don't need what you have. I have enough of my own. And Jacob gives this final response. Truly, to see your face, my brother, Esau, is like seeing the face of God since you have received me with such favor. He goes on to say, God has gr- dealt gracious with me Jacob, the chosen one now, sees the face of the God who chose him in his outsider brother, Esau. It is a scene equal to maybe only a couple of other in the scriptures. Who else has a scene like this in a few chapters? Joseph with his brothers, correct? Move to the the New Testament. Where else is there a scene like this where there's a, a reuniting of two parties? The prodigal son almost with as much power and beauty as the prodigal son, here comes Esau, who has the right to release all this rebellion, and instead he embraces his brother and he weeps. And his brother says, I have seen the face of God. So what can an outsider teach an insider, is the question. Sometimes insiders are afraid of a gracious God. Sometimes insiders see grace as news too good to be true. But I get an instinct with Esau that rather than God foreordaining that he would lose his birthright, Esau realized he had a choice with this God. Esau could detest his birthright if he wanted. He could walk away from it if he chose. That's what freedom of choice means. Even as the firstborn, he could walk away. But this Esau also seems to know that any time he chooses, he can walk back. And he can see the face of God. What can an insider learn from an outsider? Something for me more powerful in Esau's gesture than most of the patriarch's story that Esau could do this for his brother. We spoke all spring, off and on, about the outsider in these walls and having courage and taking risks to meet people and bring them in and to be vulnerable and open to that and to ask ourselves questions about what that looks like. All spring long we talked about this and for a lot of good reasons we said this is the task of the church to bring the outsider in. But I learned in this Esau story today a new reason, another reason why the church has its eye on the outsider. Because the outsider can actually teach me. The outsider will actually teach you. And people say, can you find truth outside the church? How could you answer anything other than, yes, after you meet Esau? Taking risks with outsiders. A trailer park story, Judy, because we want to go there tomorrow and we would love for many of you to join us. It was our last day in May when we went we had the eighth graders with us. We were out pulling weeds in the yard, and with permission, I tell you the story of a lady that I've befriended over a few months who's lived life on the hard side, on the outside, and um, she stands with a tank of oxygen as she gives us our instructions on what to do. Here I have these eighth grade girls with me, and I thought, well, I'll take a little risk. I'll just engage her in some conversation. So I said to the woman, these are 8th graders. They're about to be ninth graders. Going off to academy in the fall going to be big, you know, high school students. Why don't you give them a little advice? Tell them what they need to know. What will make them successful in high school? What do you think? You know, give them your best. I wasn't really sure what was going to come out of her mouth, to be very honest. I thought I might have just created a problem. She stands up. Says to these girls, they're all girls kneeling on the floor pulling weeds. She said, You girls, you go to school this fall. You don't do dope. You don't smoke. You don't drink. And a few other flavorful words she threw in there. You stay away from them boys. Them boys are trouble. And I know, let me tell you, I know, she told our girls. You go to that school and you listen to your teachers because they have something to tell you, and you think you know more. The speech just went on. You think you know more, but I'm here to tell you you'll learn whatever they have to teach you because they know better. You girls do this, you'll be all right. Now, in that speech, for very bright eyed girls. <laughs> Who were paying attention probably learned as much from an outsider than they will ever learn from me at this pulpit in an entire year. What can the insider learn from the outsider? Wow. The grace of God for starters. And whatever else God brings along. The question always remains, are we open for that? In Jesus' name, I ask you that question. Are you open for that? Amen.